Welcome to Sugar Nutmeg, carrying to you a feast of Southeast Asian stories from the spiciest to the sweet, ones that melt and ones that pop. I'm Ruth Ferriningrum. And I'm Alexandra Kumala. In this episode, we talk to Silong Chun, a Cambodian-American Renaissance man who came to the United States as a refugee. We talk to him about the Cambodian diaspora, dynamics with other Southeast Asian countries, and using his clothing brand to reclaim tainted narratives. I grew up here in um, Tacoma, Washington, but I was born in Cambodia. I came to the United States in 1981 as a refugee. We were fleeing a war um, uh, under the Khmer Rouge. My parents both survived the Khmer Rouge uh, genocide, and I was born at the tail end of the war, 1979. Just to talk a little, introduce a little bit myself. I'm the current digital uh, communications manager at a Pacific Lutheran University. And uh, I've just been in, involved in the arts quite a bit. Um, I do a, a lot of digital media, video production, film, audio production, and graphic design. Um, my background is really in um, audio production, but um, just my career has been taking me to a lot of places. So uh, the current projects that I'm currently working on is uh, I have a clothing brand called uh, Red Scarf Revolution which is really more of a platform than a clothing brand. The clothing is just the vehicle to drive the message. Uh, the goal for that was really to connect the youth, the upcoming Cambodian generations to their history and culture because uh, the generation that I, I'm from is really aware of the atrocities that happened in the 70s and, and why we're here. But a lot of the Cambodian Americans youth that was born here, it's really disconnected with that um, history because uh, a lot of their parents are also my age and older and they're, they're dealing with a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. So it's really difficult to you know talk about what they've been through. So my goal for Red Scarf Revolution really is just to um, bring awareness. Uh, I'm not trying to preach or teach anybody anything they don't want to learn, but the clothing designs, I do have a lot of elements from the Cambodian history, especially during the Khmer Rouge. And I just want to bring awareness to the youth so they can continue to learn their history because, you know, the cliche says you can't really move forward until you're grounded in your history. That's awesome. There's, there's a lot of talk right now about how to talk about the atrocities in history without getting stuck in a victim mentality. Right. Um, and how do you do that with Red Scarf Revolution? I try to reclaim our own history because we are the product, the result of that history. But at the same time, it, the history doesn't have to define us. We, we could define ourselves as we move forward. But in order to understand how to move forward and define who we are as, as, as people, we have to, you know, going back to the cliche, we have to understand where we come from. So to answer your question, um, to, to, to kind of move forward and not victimize ourselves is to recognize, recognize and understand how it happened, why it happened, and try to understand why, how we're here as a people. And I do that with really thoughtful designs, um, even lettering, the messages I'm trying to put out. I mean, I have uh, designs where I um, memorialize a tree that is really provocative, right? Um, the sign at the killing fields, they call it the killing tree, right? So when I design that tree, I kind of make, I, I try to make it look a little bit more easier to consume. It's not so morbid, right? Right. Um, I'll send you the design after our conversation. 
But I have this silhouette of a tree with a scarf blowing in the wind, right? It's very symbolic of what that tree stands for, but, but at the same time, it's not really morbid. You know what I mean? So I try to not really dumb down or downplay the severity of the images, but at the same time, present it in a way where it's uh, consumable, uh, modern, and and recognizable to to the youth. Um, I grew up really immersed in in hip hop culture, street cultures. I skateboarded as a kid, and a you, you know um, really into hip hop. So I kind of understand. Well, I think I understand what the youth is looking for as far as for um, clothing and representation wear. And you know, another reason why I started this clothing brand as a platform was that growing up as a Cambodian refugee as a kid there's really no role models for Cambodians right um we, we live in a white supremacist world so every 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 image you see on tv that was positive was white right and uh you have you know your actors and stars of these films that you grow up watching and you 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 get used to seeing so many white people and and the clothing too there's really no clothing to represent Cambodians or even Southeast Asian refugees at that time you know I grew up you know Adidas for soccer would have Brazil uh, track soccer jackets and all that stuff and you know there, to me there's something missing I say how can I how can I you know be proud of who I am and and identify with my culture and at the same time balance that I would be an American so um I you know um, I, I wasn't a graphic designer to begin like everybody else um in the back then we I got a bootleg of Photoshop you downloaded it and just taught myself how to design simple simple things like the designs I use for the clothing is not very complex. It's very simple, um, meaningful, um, sometimes provocative. So I, I think I have a knack for what um, the youth is attracted to as far as fashion, uh, symbolism and logos and, and just graphics go. So, and I've been pretty um, fortunate and blessed that it's, it's been received pretty well. At the beginning, it wasn't that good as it was, which is understandable because, but you know, the Khmer Rouge, they wore those red scarves, you know, as part of their uniform. And, you know, to call the clothing brand Red Scarf Revolution, um, the initial reception was, oh, he's a genocide sympathizer. He's sympathizing with the Khmer Rouge, and which is rightfully understandable. And I was preparing myself for that backlash. But, you know, once they visit the website, have a conversation. And and that's the main point of the um, Rescue Revolutions too, is to spark a conversation. Everywhere, every time I wear a shirt that has a design that I've made, um, people always ask, what's that? What does that mean? So, um, you know, just, just getting that conversation started was the main goal of it. So, you know, provocation was part of that. Mm-hmm. So- yeah, I really like the fact that you you called it Red Scarf Revolution because that really just turned people on their heads thinking that, oh, you know, he's he's a Khmer Rouge supporter, um, but then it turns out it's actually the opposite of that and trying to educate people. About right, it. right. And in my, in my mind, I was trying to reclaim that Red Scarf because a Red Scarf became associated with the Khmer Rouge only during their reign, right? That scarf that we call the Krama was part of the American, I mean American, the Cambodian culture way before the Khmer Rouge, but it just came in all different colors. You know, we use it as a scarf to cover our faces, to protect us from the dust. They use it as a baby carrier. They use it to wipe their sweat off. And some use it to wear as a sarong, you know? So the really the Reskoff revolution is just reclaiming what was once ours and turn into such a negative image, trying to reclaim it to bring it back to a positive image. So 
Right. So as an outsider, I'm curious about the history before the uh, the Khmer Rouge. So there there were uh, a lot of civil wars, right? Well, um, the civil war really, there's always a power struggle within countries, right? And I, I, the date's not accurate, but I, I know that the French colonized the whole Southeast Asia and Cambodia specifically gained independence from France either 1953 or 1958. But um I think um, before that, Cambodia was at peace. The only reason why there was turmoil, I think between 1958 to 19, the early 70s, Cambodia was pretty much at peace. It was a neutral country. And as you know, the Vietnam War was occurring, right? And they were their neighbors. So really the war, the Vietnam War spilled into Cambodia because Americans started bombing Laos, started bombing Vietnam, started bombing Cambodia too. So when the war spilled over to Cambodia, there's a struggle of power. Our king um, at the time was sovereign. Cambodia was a sovereign nation. And then once the war started going, and then, you know, the Khmer Rouge has always been around. They didn't just pop up in the 70s. They've been around since the 40s and 50s, you know, Marxist ideologies. But I think what gave them such a good run and they were able to recruit was when the United States started bombing Cambodia and they would use that bombing as propaganda say, look, the United States is bombing us. We need to get together. And if you think about it, it's all the people in the rural countries and the villages that were able to be um, persuaded and fell into the propaganda in the Khmer Rouge because you, you didn't know what was happening in the city. And this group of military militia people, regime comes to you, say, hey, our country's getting bombed, as you can see, join us, and then we could defeat the United States. And during that time, too, the United States overthrew our king and installed uh, the Lono government, you know, so they overthrew the king, the Lono government, so the Khmer Rouge was totally against that government. As soon as the Khmer Rouge was able to gain enough recruits and, and seize a lot of power, and because of the Vietnam War and all the turmoil, um, they were able to rise to power. They, they took over, they overthrew the Lono government that was United States-backed, and the United States just pulled back and from 1975 to 1979, um, an estimated you know, 1.8 to 2 million Cambodians died because of that. Do you feel that if the United States hadn't overthrown the king, you know, things wouldn't have turned out the way they did? Absolutely, absolutely. I do feel that 100% because the king who was overthrown by the United States sided with the Khmer Rouge. So, you know, as um, Asian countries, small country goes, they love their king, right? They see the monarch as the epitome of the perfect being and they just worship the king. So when the United States overthrew the, him, you know, he was in exile in China, um, the Khmer Rouge approached him and said, hey, we want to get our country back from the United States, join our party, which they use him as a propaganda piece too. I'm pretty, I'm not um, accusing the king of uh, supporting the Khmer Rouge so he can kill 2 million people. I think he just didn't know what he was getting into. So absolutely, the, if the United States did not overthrow the king, um, there would have been uh, less power for the Khmer Rouge to, to recruit its army. So. Right. I'm curious about what is the dream behind turning Cambodia into year zero? You know, I'm not an expert, but I do, right. uh, do have a little bit of knowledge and reading, but they wanted to turn into like how it was back in the Angkor Wat days uh, when it's this farming utopia where you produce rice for the country and everyone's just getting along. I honestly feel in my opinion, you know, through just, just my background and research, mm -hmm. I think the Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, when they really took over the country, they were way over their heads. They didn't know what they were doing. I can draw a lot of parallels to this administration now here in the United States. They were 
um, just not prepared to run a country. And then paranoia sets in. They started killing their own uh, officers, the high-ranking officers, accusing them of being the enemy. They divided people and de dehumanized people in order to kill them. And you know, it's I don't see this. There's a lot of parallels. This what's happening today with this administration. And that's yeah, interesting. Like yeah, yeah, Alexandra. I, I feel like that's interesting because the Khmer Rouge is, uh, you know, like supposedly so communist, so like super far left. And then America right now is like very free market capitalistic um, mm -hmm. and, you know, going far right. And so it's it's on the opposite sides of the spectrum and yet it's the same way of authoritarian rule and so it's not about right or left i feel it's about people abusing their power and and i think a lot of people don't don't recognize that part enough yeah, yeah if you think about it um the khmer rouge when they took over they got rid of all the intellectuals all the teachers professors all the scholars all the musicians filmmakers all the artists right everybody that they thought was a smart or intelligent person and they didn't have any way to prove it. Even if you wore glasses, they assumed that you were smart because usually people with glasses are professors and stuff. And, you know, they marginalized those types of people that's dedicated their life to study, to do music, to delve in the art. But if you look at this administration, they're doing the exact same thing with those veterans. Uh, Anthony Fauci, you know, Dr. Fauci, who's a lifelong, like, doctor that studied viruses, you know, they, you know, this administration marginalized him and him. So they're discrediting and undermining these experts and professionals that's been in the field for so long so they can create division and create doubt, right? And it's, it's the same technique. Like, no matter how far left or far right, as long as you're extreme, that's the problem where you go to so much extreme just to hold on to power. And it's that, that's why I draw the similarities, even one's communist and one's capitalist. When you're at the extreme of both ends, it's not, not a good thing. Yeah, I see that on the Red Scarf Revolution, you uh, say that it's a project to provide like education for the younger generation. But what do you think of the growing authoritarian authoritarianism in Cambodia right now? Um, you know, uh, Hun Sen, the prime minister of Cambodia right now, was an ex-Khmer Rouge soldier, right? He, yeah, that. He went to Vietnam because he was on the list of getting executed by Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, and that Vietnam came and, you know, liberated Cambodia. Liberated in parentheses because that's another um, topic to discuss. What I feel about it, um, me being grown up in uh, the United States, I don't have a lot to say about the Cambodian politics and the uh, and the happenings there, but. All I do want to say is that people in Cambodia view it very different than people that grew up here in the United States. I think people in the here in the United States have a lot to say because we have a lot of privileges that aren't afforded in Cambodia. And then even though we're afforded the privilege to speak our mind about the Cambodian and the Cambodian politics, I don't think anyone who grew up here in the United States should say anything. I don't think we have the weight or the, the experience to, to criticize a government that we've never lived under. You know, I'm not supporting Hun Sen. I know he's been in power for 30, 30 some years, and I think that's wrong. I don't agree with that, but I don't live under his regime. I don't experience the oppression. So my opinion shouldn't hold any weight. That's how I feel about it. But I talk to my friends who do live there, and they have their opinions, but they can't speak freely and openly, right? So as an advocate for democracy and freedom and the right to live and, you know, freedom of speech, 
The only thing I can say is that I hope that Cambodia and the youth that's in Cambodia now and people that grew up here in the United States will go back to change a culture that's been just, you know, destroyed, not, not even 40 years ago. We don't have, we can't depend on the government to make that change. We have to start it from the bottom up. So hopefully the youth that's growing up now with globalization, with the internet, seeing how we have to fight for our rights to free, you know, free speech and being able to be who we are, express ourselves. I just hope that when asked, um, the future generation gets older, we progress that way and not be so dependent on the government. Do you feel that you being in the U.S. and having grown up here, you are more aware about the history of Cambodia because there's no censorship and you're more free to talk about it and have discussions with people versus people who are actually in Cambodia who either, you know, they can't talk about it and therefore they don't know about these things fully or because they're too close to it that they have to numb themselves and sort of pretend that things just didn't happen or doesn't happen. Yeah, um, I think all of the above, you've hit every point that I was going to say in answer to that question because you're, you're absolutely right. They're so close to it that they have to heal before they can even acknowledge it, right? So, I mean, it's only about less than you know, it's about 40, 47, I think, what is it, 45 years this year? I'm not sure. We've got to do the math. But, um, yeah, yeah, they're so close to it. And and then just the educational um, materials aren't available, you know. Um, I know when I went there in 2005, I asked my cousin to take me to S21. They call it dual slang. It was a high school that they turned into prison and execution and torture um, facility. And he didn't know what it was. And he said he heard a little bit about the Khmer Rouge, but it's more of like, a myth that happened long ago. And they didn't teach it in schools in 2005, but I think that's changed now. I think if you go to a university out there, they do touch on it. But yeah, um, the trauma, they're too close and they don't have the freedom to talk about it. But saying that, there are different um, NGOs, non-governmental organizations that do document and curating documents and stories and and, and um, just evidence of the atrocities back then. Um, there's DCCAM, which stands for the Documentation Center of Cambodia. They're doing a really good job at archiving all Khmer Rouge memorabilia, pictures, currency that they used to have there. And this is recent, within the past five, 10 years that DCCAM has been around. So I think they're coming around to the realization of their history. But as you said before, anything like DC Cam came out, they just never talked about it. They never acknowledged it. I think that's as a nation to get to where they, a, a space where they can heal fully. And then before you can even talk about the trauma, you have to heal from it, right? So I think as Cambodia currently, we're still in the healing process, but we're moving away from healing a little bit because there's, uh, you know, right now there's a renaissance there. Music's coming back, film's coming back. The youth is getting older and getting more smarter and um, we're just slowly rebuilding. The Here in the United States, I feel like Cambodian Americans do call it a genocide. Mm-hmm. In Cambodia, are you allowed to use the word genocide? That's a good question. I, I, I'm going to write that, take note of that, and then um, ask my cousins there because they, they live there. Mm. Yeah, I, I, wouldn't even, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, because like, I remember how long ago was that? Um, like several months ago, uh, I think like someone from the U.S. State Department misspoke because apparently in 
United States, America doesn't recognize the Armenian genocide as a genocide. And then he called it a genocide and and people are like freaked out because it's like, oh no, America is not supposed to, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> recognize mm-hmm. it as that yeah, politically. See. And then there are, there are many places like in Southeast Asia where you know, you can't say it's a genocide. You can just say like bad things happen. Right. Um, so I'm really curious about how how it is in Cambodia. Yeah, no, yeah. Um, that's a good question because they do have, you know, the S21 now is a museum. They they call it the genocide museum. They call it through slang the genocide museum. So um, uh, okay. But I just don't know what is called in you know in Khmer the language itself. And they have a killing fields about forty miles from the tool slang. They call it the genocide killing fields. So um, it sounds like now that I thought about it, they they do refer to refer to it as a genocide. Because Indonesia also going through the same problem, but we our government just want to move on without acknowledging you know the pain. Yeah, whatsoever. So it's still like you know, in midair. I disagree. People... I disagree with not acknowledge because if you, if you don't yeah. recognize your past, you're destined to continue to carry that burden. A good example of that: the United States and slavery. They've never reckoned with the past of slavery. They acknowledge it, but they didn't. They don't acknowledge it to a point where it's like, okay, this is what we did is really bad. This is what we're going to do to fix it. Instead of fixing it, they just ignore it, ignore it. And as you can see, tensions here in the United States with the black community is just getting more tense, and it's just not good because there's a reckoning that this country that you know I live in have to face and we have to face it with with accountability if you want to just ignore it it's not it's never going to go away touching on that what are your feelings about the fact that the united states had their hands all over a lot of the planet <laughs> but in a lot of things that happen in southeast asia particularly like big political changes and regimes and the fact that they don't teach that in here, like they don't teach um, that in U.S. history in the U.S., that the U.S. was involved in all of these things and the effects of them getting involved changed the history of a country, right? I One of the most frustrating things um, that happened to me and like pushed me to actually make this podcast and have conversations with Southeast Asians is because I was like in a group of like a lot of US people and I talked about like, oh, you know, like US involvements in other countries and how um, they bombed this and that. And they were like, oh yeah, like the US basically like was in war with Japan. And then after after World War II ended, like basically we're good now, right? <laughs> and I got, I was like so mad, yo, like, like what the hell? Um, and and I feel like that's that's such a, dangerous thing the fact that a lot of you know young people in the u.s have absolutely no idea the kind of involvement the u.s had in southeast asia and latin america everywhere um, the destabilization yeah. destabilization of so many small countries due to uh capitalistic opportunities i think what my feelings about that are i think i think it does everybody a disservice it does our community a disservice. It does uh, marginalized people a disservice because what we're taught in, in school is this Disney version of American history, right? Where everything's all good, all our, all these white men are heroes, but they don't touch on the violence and the damaging that is done throughout history. So the United States has a lot of blood on its hands. That's no, that's no doubt about it, but I think where 
our education system fails is that we fail to acknowledge that, especially with high school kids. You know, we I think we have to, you know, because each, each part of history that the United States is involved with is very in-depth, right? But at least touch on it, at least touch about on, on how, uh, you know, the United States replaces governments all over the world and destabilizes the country. And, and, and you look at the results of Latin America, the United States destabilizing countries like Honduras and El Salvador. We go in there, remove, remove the government, and then you get this tyrannical government that comes and, and, and brutalizes citizens, and then they try to flee and come to the United States. And then us here in the United States who have no absolute knowledge of what's going on think these people are leaving the country just to come to the United States so they can take our jobs, which yeah. is the case. They're running away yeah. from because the United States is the cause of the destabilization. And once we realize that and, 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 and understand more, I think we're capable of more showing more empathy and, and more, um, treat, you know, treat these people as human beings. And, and we have a responsibility to, to take in these refugees and immigrants. Yeah. That's, because why, right. that's why I'm here to begin with, because they knew they fucked up. In Southeast Asia, so in 1980, they did the refugee, they, they uh, amended the Refugee Resettlement Act where they accepted Laos, Hmong, Vietnamese, and Cambodians. Right, and, and now there's a lot of deportation cases yes. um, with Laos, Cambodian, and mm -hmm. Vietnamese populations, undocumented populations. Right, right. And, and I feel like... Um, that's a conversation um, that's also very interesting because a lot of the census data that gets calculated, I feel, don't account for um, Southeast Asians because a lot of Southeast Asians are undocumented. And I personally know a lot of people who just don't want to fill out forms and things like that. Um, if you're talking to people that have anything to do with the government. And so, so like a lot of discussions about Asians in the United States is very focused on East Asians or South Asians. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. And like, like when you're undocumented, you can't vote. And like now it's, you know, it's like voting season and everything. And it's like, it's hard to have these conversations when, when, when people don't know the, the extent of, you know everything that happened in history right it's it's not black and white there's so many gray areas and um speaking of the census and you know it's true a lot of a lot of folks even if they're here permanently legally they're afraid to take the census because the distressing government is very high especially mm. right now and if you think about it the census is taken every 10 years so the numbers aren't aren't ever going to be accurate but we want to be as accurate as we can so imagine being here at, coming here legally as a resident alien like most southeast asians are they're here as permanent legal residents, but with the deportation that's going on since the early 2000s, there's distrust there. Like, why would you want to fill out something from the government? But, you know, they don't understand that, you know, the different branches of the government and, and, and taking a census won't go affect you. But how do you know that, right? How, do, how can you be, be reassured that when you fill out the census form that the government is not going to come knocking on your door to deport you? And um, just, I want to talk a little bit about the deportation in the Cambodian community. Um, a lot of these guys and women, too, who have been deported from the Cambodian community are here legally. They've been here legally under that, you know, Refugee Resettlement Act and um, grown up in in the hood. They put us, they didn't put us in the, the, the best neighborhoods, right? There's a lot of social economic challenges in the neighborhoods that they put us in because that's 
the easiest place to put us in. So when we coming here, navigating a new world, not understanding things, not understanding law, I, I'll tell you like 99% of the Cambodians here who came here as legal aliens, like, you know, resident aliens thought they were citizens. They thought they were afforded the same rights as citizens, which we were. The only thing that we couldn't do was vote because we weren't citizens. But you know, they committed petty crimes. A lot of people joined gangs, they got gun charges all the way down to as little as just pissing on a wall, you can get deported. But the difference, um, the Cambodian story, Cambodian American story and Laos, Lao American stories too, Hmong Americans too, that a lot of these folks who are getting deported already did their time. You know, there's a lot of what the process is that's really common within this community, the Southeast Asian deportation community. They would spend 10, 15 years in jail. Once they get the release date from jail, the, the state jail contact ICE, right? Say, hey, this guy's getting a job. Then ICE will pick him up. So there's, they didn't see not even a minute of freedom. So after serving their time, 10, 15 years, they get picked up by ICE and then probably spend another one or two years before they get processed to get deported. So to us, that's unconstitutional because they've already served the time. And, and if you were a citizen, they would call that double jeopardy. So that's why this work is so important that we fight for our community to keep these people with their family. A lot of these guys too did, did crimes when they were 16, 17 years old. 20 years later, they're old in their 40s. They've been working. Um, I had a friend who was an ele electrician who was on the, um, the chopping block to get deported. He has a family and kids. It's the sole provider, the sole income of the family. If they were to remove him, what would the family do? You know, they're going to lose their house. They're going to lose, you know, their, their way of life. And how is this wife supposed to take care of the kids? And then you're just creating another problem. You're separating these families. And then it's intentional. They don't want to keep families together because when we're disadvantaged, they can hold the power. So when you keep communities together, we are able to um, thrive. When we thrive, we create a sense of uh, ownership and power, and then we can our kids can grow up and vote, right? So um, the way this government operates, if you're a colored person or brown person, Southeast Asian person, if they split you up and, and, and just disadvantage you in any way possible, they're able to maintain their power. So, I mean, that's what's unique about um, the deportations within a Southeast Asian community. You know, and, and to give you some numbers, most people who are here illegally are here on work visas and, and education visas, right? They come here to go to school, their visa expires, why would they go back? You know, it's, it's not people crossing the border at the South, you know what I mean? That's, that's you know, that's, that's not even the majority of people who are here illegally. Well, it's just so much. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, do you feel that um, since the program and was it the, the 70s or 80s, the 80s, um, do you feel like Cambodian refugees or immigrant populations are given the opportunity for social mobility or are a lot of people still struggling because of the way the program works? I think... Um there's a few, there's a very minority of Cambodians who's come here and able to um, do well, you know, do well. Some, you have to understand some, most of us came here with nothing. And um, I think uh, a lot of us came here without parents, some with one parent, you know. I can't speak for everybody, but I, I was able to come here. I had both parents and I had a really good support system. All my cousins came here before the Khmer Rouge took over. Um, uh, when, when it was going down in Cambodia, my aunts and uncles at the time was really in pretty privileged position. Some were for the government, some were teachers. So they were aware of the, the happenings in Cambodia. So they actually left before the Khmer Rouge took over. 
And it was my family that was able to work with the church to get my family here in 1970, 1981. Me being a Cambodian refugee in 1981, I'm privileged in that way where I had a good support system. I was able to go to school and graduate and, you know, had the opportunity to go to college where the majority of the Cambodians that was around me didn't have that opportunity. They didn't have that support. They were in and out of foster care. So um, as far as social mobility, I would have to say um, I can't blanket the the answer to no we weren't afforded the the resources you know as a as a community as a whole there wasn't a program say hey cambodian southeast asians mom that came here in the refugee settlement here go through this program so you can get here we just had to figure it out when when you figure it out when you have a family member or a close friend or your circle was successful the chances the potential of you being successful is higher than say uh my neighbor who didn't have parents getting here and he's been in and out of foster care so there wasn't a set program or one program or one one thing that will will um, allow Southeast Asians for social mobility. You just kind of had, had to get lucky. Mentioning Laos, I'm curious about how's the country's relationship with your neighboring countries like uh, Vietnam, Thailand, and Laos. Is <laughs> That's it like a question for me to answer because I grew up in the United States? It's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. But um, as far as my own experiences go, I haven't been to Laos. I I've been to Thailand. I know, I know Thailand treats Cambodians as a lesser. Um, you just have that feeling, just even going through the border. There's a lot of uh, classism too. But, um, even with your American passport? Even with my American passport. It doesn't matter. I was, uh, I was at Poi Pet traveling from, uh, you know, from Cambodia. And, you know, a lot of Cambodians speak Thai and Laos too. It's just, you know, everyone's kind of, mixed together and you know just going through the border and like yeah man they just talking mad shit about us well then i'll change the questions how's the uh the community's relationships in america i think it's good i think it's good um lao uh vietnamese and cambodian relations are a lot better than what they used to be in the 80s and 90s because coming here you know you still hold you know our our parents my parents still hold their traditional way of thinking, the perspective, you know, and, and vi- especially the Vietnamese community, the Vietnamese and Cambodians has long been traditional enemies throughout history. So when they carried a little bit of that with him, but, you know, newer generations, like my generation and my kids and the 20, 30 year olds, our relationships are a lot better. We realize that, you know, we're all in the same boat. We came from similar backgrounds and we're struggling to survive in the same way. So we try to be more unified than divided because, you know, Cambodians is one of the first group have been deported. Um, I think our first deportation started in early 2000, 2002. Vietnam has actually has an MOU, they call them a memorandum of understanding that if you are a Vietnamese refugee, if you came to the United States before 1995, you can't get deported. There's no way to deport you. But this, the Trump administration is trying to renegotiate that MOU currently, but they've been unsuccessful. So every year he's been in, in power, I mean, in, as president, he's tried to renegotiate that MOU with Vietnam, but Vietnam has been really um, strict and they put their foot down and say, no, nope, this is the agreement. We're not going to take anybody back that came to the United States before 1995 because they're not Vietnamese, they're, they're Americans. And Laos haven't accepted any deportees because Laos, from what I understand, if you were born in the Thailand refugee camp, Laos can see you as a Thai national, so they won't accept you. And then Thailand won't accept them too. So if you're Laos and you're in ICE detention, they won't release you. You're just, you're just kind of stuck in limbo. So yeah, Cambodians yeah. was the first government to accept deportees. So going back to how our community is trying to be more united, 
Um, I know the Vietnamese community here in Tacoma, Seattle area reached out to our group, the Khmer Anti-Deportation Advocacy Group, just on, you know, just consulting us of, of what to do, what the strategies are, because, you know, the administration did try last year, a couple of years ago, to renegotiate the MOU. So to be prepared in case the renegotiation was successful, we got together and we would hold workshops. We'd get immigration lawyers together and just talk to, you know, the Vietnamese community as one community. So there's, there's a lot more um, unity than it is divided, I would say, compared to when we first got here in the, in the 80s. Are you hopeful about the, the coming election? <laughs> um, I'm always hopeful, but I can't be naive either. Yeah, because I've talked to like a lot of Americans, like, well, uh, most of them are like hopeful, but like the others are like, ah, or just like, maybe he's going to win again. Yeah, there's always that fear because we can't be so naive because he won in 2016 when nobody thought he was going to win. So the yeah. possibility of that happening is very high. But to me, in my opinion, if you can't see a, the person he is that he's shown us these past couple of years, then he'll, there's no changing anyone's mind. So, I, you know, I don't really focus on trying to change people's minds on who to vote for. Just get out there and vote and then, you know. Do you, um, can I go back to uh, to the previous question? Do you feel like the MOU has been upheld because people in the U.S. are so familiar with the Vietnam War, but then I feel like the U.S. hasn't acknowledged what's happened in Cambodia or Laos, like the U.S. involvement in Cambodia or Laos. Is that, do you feel like that's why there's a difference there? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, over here, they call it the Vietnam War. In Vietnam, they call it the American War. Is The war went on for 30-plus uh, years, such a long time. So I think it was a stain in the United States' reputation of a superpower because at the end of the day, the United States didn't win that war. The, you know, the South Vietnamese took over, and um, they're running the government today. And I, I would say, yeah, yeah, because it's, it's, it was more of a popular... Uh, I wouldn't say popular war. It's not a very popular war. A lot of people protested and against it here too and while it was happening, but it's more mainstream, you know. It's part of the American conscience for over 30 years and to retreat, I think the United States recognized that and they're able to honor that. If this was a film, Vietnam War, the two main stars of the United States and then Vietnam, and then you got your, your co-stars, Cambodia, Laos, you know, it's just minor roles, but very critical roles. But I, I do, uh, the, the United States did acknowledge the bombings in Cambodia. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was a shitty say, uh, our bad, here's a hundred bucks. This video of really? the United States government handing out cash to the villagers of the villages. Oh my God. Right, right. And then just for them accepting us here in the United States too is another form of acknowledgement. And Obama actually went to Cambodia, Laos, to visit during his time as president. The first time the United States has been there since the Vietnam War. So, I mean, there's a little bit of, of acknowledgement. And, you know, every New Year's, every Cambodian New Year, Lao New Year, if you go to the, well, I, don't, I haven't checked during Trump's administration. They would always put out a statement saying, you know, Happy New Year to the Cambodian community here in the United States, Lao community. And, you know, we, we, we pay attention. But I think you're right. Vietnam was the main character in this film. So they, they get a lot more, have a lot, a lot more push. I feel like the um, the Indonesians in Indonesia versus Indonesians here in the U.S. Um, and I know this is the same with Vietnamese people too. Um, I feel like there's this how do I say it like gap where people there 
say like, oh, you live so far away. Like you know nothing about what's happening here. Even though like, as we talked about, like sometimes being distanced from everything that's happening, you're more aware about the history and mm-hmm. the background behind current political climate. What is, what is it like in Cambodia, like in the home country and in the diaspora? I haven't really had a chance to really talk about that per se with the the people I know in Cambodia. All I know is that people of Cambodia aren't really too worried about the politics. I mean, there's many reasons for that, right? Because you can't be too worried about politics. You will get, you will get reprimanded by the government. For example, there's a rapper that put out a song and the government told him to stop rapping. Cambodian rapper who lives in Cambodia? Yeah, in Cambodia, he just released a song criticizing the government and they right. showed up at his door and said, hey man, you need to stop this. And over here, we're all mad, we're all fuming, we're all, but over there, you dare not say anything. So What did they do to him? I think they arrested him, but I don't know. And this is not the first time either. This is, this is probably the second or third time the government has clamped down on a right. musician over there. For And if you listen to the song, he's not even saying anything critical of the government. He's just saying there's a lot of poverty um, he's just saying the rich people are so rich, but they ignore, you know, the ills of society. They act like we don't exist. Just, uh, just observing of, you know, his perspective and what his family's going through, and they don't like that because it makes them look bad. And suppressing that is, is not good. And you know, no one, nobody in Cambodia, has talked about it or mentioned it online. You don't dare say anything. But here in the United States. Facebook, social media is just rampant about how messed up it is. And of course, we can say that here. There's no repercussions. Right. I remember watching this piece about, I believe she's an actor or a singer, um, and she used to be very active in the opposition party. And then she she did a complete 180, and now she's supporting yeah. you know, the current government. Yeah, um, I... I'm aware of that. Vice did a story on that. Vice, uh, Vice News here in the United States. And yeah, she was totally opposite. Fighting for civil rights, human rights. And then all of a sudden, she just did a total 360, 180. And now she supports the government. She's advocating for them. And yeah, I guess she's some kind of social media influencer. I'm aware of that too. And I'm pretty sure a couple of things happened. They say, hey, um, <laughs> either they paid her a lot of money or threatened her or both. That's one of those uh, acts that happens over there in Cambodia all the time. You know, journalists get killed, murdered in the street by the government. The government come out and say, we'll find the perpetrators who did that. And everybody knows it was the government that did it. But nobody dares to say anything because your livelihood is at stake. Where here in the United States, we can yell all we want because we're not going to be, there's no repercussions, you know, there's no consequences for us expressing our disdain for the government of Cambodia because we don't live there. So that's why I try to be careful and not be too critical because I'm not in this situation. But it's also interesting that uh, there's one of the princesses that like published a book that criticized the government. Is this a Cambodian? Yeah. Uh, Princess Suma Norodom. Oh yeah. Norodom is royalty. But uh, what's the book called? It's called, uh, I think, Royal Rebelled or something. Yeah, thank you for bringing that to my attention. I was unaware. Right. I mean, it's, I'm just curious because she is part of the royal family and she's rebelling. And I think now she's in exile here in America or something. Probably, yeah. Mm-hmm. Most likely, if you're writing something about the government, you can't be 
in Cambodia. You have to be here or France or but, anywhere. But what if, what if they still have family in Cambodia, though? So, like, does the government look for family members that they're connected to? To, th- like, threat them, you mean? I don't know enough. Uh, you know, I couldn't say whether they do or not. Mm. Uh, I'd just be making up stuff if I did because I haven't had that experience. But how is the Cambodian art community in Seattle? The arts community here? Yeah. I think it's um, progressing. Here in the United States, the Cambodian community is moving forward. Um, our older, our parents are getting older. But as, as a community, I think we're progressing. I think we're progressing where a lot, of, a lot more of us are graduating from universities and colleges, getting into careers more than before. So what our parents set to do came here to do was provide a better life for the future generation. We're starting to see it come to fruition. We're starting to pick the fruits of the labor. But that doesn't mean every Cambodian family is doing better, right? I think, I think the Cambodians are one of the lowest, you know, demographic group to graduate from a four-year university or even a, a two-year university mm-hmm. education-wise. Um, poverty level is really high too in our community compared to others. But we're slowly progressing and I think we're making really big strides within our community. There's, we have a lot of people doing great things. And I'm really proud to be where we are today. You know, we're not going to be perfect anytime soon. But as far as arts goes, films go, music goes, uh, Cambodian-American uh, literature, you know, there's artists, there's authors, there's filmmakers and musicians all over the United States. And I think the great thing about it is that our community is so small that we are aware what everyone is doing like we have Jay Chan, the singer who's got like 10 million views in the United States and Cambodia, and just a really phenomenal singer to sing old Cambodian song, able to tour the United States. Well, where 20 years ago it wouldn't have been possible. You know, we have uh, chefs uh, opening pop ups, restaurants all over the United States, and then we have authors publishing books, promoting education, just reclaiming back our, our what we lost in the Khmer Rouge. So yeah, you know? one of my favorite poets is Monica Sok, who is Cambodian. Yes, yes, I got her book. I just bought her book. Yeah. Um, what is it called? Uh, the the nail the thread hangs on, or something like that. And then uh, here in New York, it, it wasn't written by a Cambodian American, but it, she did extensive research. Um, but it was a play called The Cambodian Rock Band. Did you hear about uh, it? Yeah, Lauren Yee. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Lauren. Lauren yeah, also. Yeah, so Lauren actually um, spent time in Seattle at Hedgebrook. I remember seeing Cambodian rock band and I was like, is this finally, you know, the world acknowledging that, or is this like finally the U.S. acknowledging that there's more to Asia besides just (laughs) Japan, Korea, and China, (laughs) and India? (laughs) Have you seen the play? I haven't seen the play yet. um, But I know Lauren, because the Cambodian rock band production, they've donated money to our Cambodian anti-deportation group. They've, they've been very supportive of our group and they donate a lot of money to us. And, you know, they've offered us free tickets to go see them because they were in Ashland, Oregon at the ah, Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I couldn't make it down there. It's about a five-hour drive for me. Mm. But um, when they do come back after the pandemic, I, I'm going to make sure I go see it. But um, that's how I know Lauren. We only met through, you know, virtually online, but um, I'm looking forward to meeting her in person. Yeah, she's she's awesome. She's like one of those people who like just does so much and yet is still very 
humble. I, yeah. I did like it a lot because um, they did touch on those, like the drama between Thailand and Cambodia, like the, yeah. um, you know, the main character, you know, she, she was like dating or sleeping with a, a Thai. And of course, like that's a, that's a thing, right? With yeah. the older yeah. generation. So there, she touches on a lot of little things like that. Um, wait, wait, but what's the theater is about? Like the big theme? Oh, the big theme is basically how the way the U.S. sees Cambodia was not, is not the way Cambodia was before. Mm-hmm. Like, it, that's why it's Cambodian rock band, because mm-hmm. back then there was a lot of music. It was lively. People danced. And then, you know, um, the Khmer Rouge happened, like the carpet bombings happened, the Khmer Rouge happened, and... And then now people, when people think about Cambodia, they just think about war, war, war. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's also something that like Ruth and I spoke to a photographer from Myanmar, from Burma. Um, mm-hmm. And she also talked about how when the U.S. thinks about Southeast Asian art, they have this like preconceived notion that it'll be pictures of like victims of war and torture or just like, you know, crazy exotic cultures exotic culture like bangkok and bali um and it's really hard to like you know reclaim the narrative for ourselves and not be exoticized in this way because the gay like the white gaze is so strong so strong i mean it's to be expected right i mean we live in a white supremacist world man they europeans colonize the whole world so they everybody's history they're they're a part of not just the united states but europe in general yeah um speaking of writers i I linked in the chat to one of my friends talking terry she's out there in new york too hopefully um you guys can connect sometime maybe i can introduce you to the email you don't have to include the part of the podcast but she's a writer too and she does great work um she did some work on cambodian rock band in new york as well i think she helped with the translations so I, I I would love to connect you 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 and her. So yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. My brother's out there. He, oh really? I, I think he lives in Manhattan, like downtown somewhere. Oh wow, wow. that's during the during the protest. Manhattan was crazy. Was it crazy in comparison to Brooklyn? Yeah. Yeah. He might be in Brooklyn. I don't know. He said he just moved. So um, um. He, he's a makeup artist and works for Chanel. Oh, big, he's, he's big nice. Cat. I would love to introduce you to him too. He's a cool cat. He needs more friends out there. <laughs> <laughs> so your kids were born and raised here and yeah. they, they must have a very like American lifestyle. How do you uh, keep Cambodian culture alive and talk to them? Or do you talk to them about history and things like that? Well, they're, they're still a little younger. My oldest is 13, and uh, my the second one is 10. And I'm ashamed to say this. I don't speak to them in Khmer at all. I wish I did, but it's hard for me to speak Khmer at home because my wife, she's um, she's Cambodian too, but she was raised with a white stepdad. So, she, you know, she was really raised in a more American household than I was. Um, I'm able to speak Khmer and understand pretty well. I'm going back to Cambodia. I don't have any problems communicating. But it's a challenge for me to speak to my kids now that I didn't start when they were at a younger age. I should have started when they were younger. But uh, yeah, they're super Americanized. They're totally American. Um, they are aware of grandma going through the Khmer Rouge and the genocide and, you know, dad, you know, came here. I talked to them about it too, but I think they're at an age where they're not really, really to, they're not really receptive of it 
completely. Even if they, I do talk about it, I don't think they can grasp the concept. But I do instill in them that, you know, we, we came from Cambodia. They know where Cambodia is. We've all these great films that are coming out from Cambodian filmmakers. We do watch it. I make them watch it. So I'm trying to tie them to the culture as best I can. I'm just hoping uh, when they get a little older, when they go through their self-discovery as teenagers and part of their identity, they can identify to being Cambodian. And when they're ready to explore that side of who they are, I'll be more than happy to, to immerse them in it. Right now, I think they're going through, of, you know, just self-discovery of who they are. And I want, I want them to be able to learn how to navigate that on their own as a parent. But I, I am ashamed to say that I haven't been the best at trying to instill traditional cultures. Because a lot of my friends have kids and they're in like Cambodian dance classes, traditional dance classes. They go to Cambodian school, which I applaud. I just wish I was more uh, intentional in doing that with my kids, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. And and at the same time, I feel like a lot of people who do live in Southeast Asia have an even more Western upbringing than people here. Like mm-hmm. I, Absolutely. I, I know so many Indonesians who grew up grew up there and live there and yet they have a much more western lifestyle than i do <laughs> you attribute that to the internet because before the internet we didn't really know what was going on or media was- too i think it's also before the internet i think me growing up in indonesia watching mtv every morning is creating this idea of american lifestyle so Ruth, let me ask you, growing up yes. um, watching MTV in Indonesia and now living in America, um, what what's your takeaway? How different, did anything change? Or were you surprised by anything about American culture that you thought or assumed when you were in Indonesia? That's different? Well, it's completely different because I thought I was gonna enjoy America, but I didn't because I feel like the distance between my country and I'm here in America just make me focus on my country more. But I think like in terms of like the American cultures, I really appreciate like how diverse it is. I mean, especially in New York, I don't know in other states because I only have experience in New York. They're so inclusive and yeah, I'm very blessed. So what what was your biggest revelation say, you know, you grew up in Indonesia watching MTV and all these um, TV shows, and you have this, you have this perception of America. Mm -hmm. My question to you is, when you got to America, what was the biggest revelation that that occurred to you? In terms of their entertainment culture, the American entertainment culture? Yeah, anything that stuck out to you that's like, you thought, oh, America is this way, but when you came, like, oh my God, America is not. I think my, my fascination of American culture stopped after I finished high school with the the keeping up with kardashian that was like the end of it it was like good for you no more i i feel like this isn't a question for me and i moved here pretty young um but i feel like i remember growing up and consuming american media and i've always thought that Michael Jackson, Mariah Carey, Meryl Streep, Will Smith, Ryan Reynolds, they were all American. They were all just American in my eyes. Mm. And it wasn't until I came here and I first came here to Washington State that I realized people really make a big deal categorizing you in different races. Like in Indonesia, I didn't grow up taking the race box, but over here, like every time I filled out a form, I had to do that. And I, I also like didn't know I hadn't been tainted. But back with, home, you're asked. Uh, oh, they're asking you what's your religion. Yeah, religion is the, the the thing that you always have to take and like identify in your ID card. 
Wow, that's that's really mind blowing because growing up here is pretty normal to check that box, you know. Um, I think America is unique in that way because there's so many different um, ethnic backgrounds that that are here. Whereas Indonesia, this this is also a mix, right? I'm so ignorant of Indonesia. <laughs> Tell me more, a little bit more about Indonesia. What's the ethnic uh, makeup? Oh, where to begin, Alexander? <laughs> it's yeah, so big. We'll save this for another, we'll so, this for another conversation then. <laughs> so like, it's so. Um, I think Indonesia is like a little America. Okay. In a way. I think there's a lot of like the like similar problems within Southeast Asian countries, uh, like during the 60s. I think mm-hmm. we have like with the Communist yeah. Party and yeah, like, yeah, it's, it's very similar. The history is very similar, and it points to the common denominator. Man, it's crazy. Yeah, the thing that pissed me off is like I don't know the educational system back home is like very westward, mm-hmm. and I think like. Why do we have to like, I mean, it's important to learn about what's happening in the West, but also like, why don't we learn about these countries that are so close and so similar and like, we don't know a damn thing about like Cambodian history, maybe a lot of Indonesian, they don't know about, you know, the tragic stuff. Yeah, I mean. I mean, I'm saying this just like in comparison in like Europe, they're like, I don't know, maybe it's not true, but from my perspective, like they're more... In they're very like, aware. Do, yeah. Yeah, they're very aware. Like France is very aware of what happens in Spain, of what mm-hmm. happens in Greece and everything versus I feel like in Asia like different countries are so insular and have no idea about what's happening even though we're so close to one another. And also like like in terms of economy, I feel like there's a lot of like we're so dependent on each other in terms of economy like what's happening in thailand and how like they want to build that like what is it like there's a bridge there's a there's a bridge right that's like that they're trying to build in thailand Mm -hmm. um that'll basically like cut through so that like when you want to do imports and exports you can just ship through thailand instead of like going down through um trying to connect the countries more well, you know, uh, to touch on what you said about the European countries being aware of each other's history and, and cultures and, and just being more connected, I think it attributes to Southeast Asian countries trying to establish themselves throughout history. All of these countries in Southeast Asia were being colonized by the Europeans, right? During that time of being colonized, I, I think the people, the native people, the indigenous people of that land didn't have the opportunity to kind of create their government and thrive and prosper to be able to create connections with each other. And then when the colonizers left, they kind of left the country with nothing. So instead of reaching out to each other and trying to connect and rebuild together, they just kind of, you know, like focus Isolated. on themselves first. Yeah, focus on themselves yeah. first. We have to build ourselves before we can even worry about the next country next to us. But I think that's slowly changing. Yeah, I mean, my point that I'm trying to make is like, I don't think our the Southeast Asian countries had the opportunity mm-hmm. to, to, to thrive and prosper, to be able to be comfortable enough to be like, oh, what's Thailand doing? Yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. let's learn about other cultures that's close to us. You know, we're tr- trying to, you know, discover um, themselves and establish themselves first. So I think that's, you know, going back to white supremacy and colonization is the common denominator of all that. So mm-hmm. do you do you feel like there are any misconceptions or stereotypes about Cambodia that need to be dismantled? I think there are many. I just don't know what they are. I'm just so oblivious, mm. but I know I know one of the 
common ones to people who are even aware of Cambodia that it's just war and genocide and then uncle what and that's it um, right. you know and yeah I don't blame anybody for that uh, you know uh, just as ignorant as I am towards Indonesia you know a lot of people are ignorant the same way to Cambodia you know that we haven't taken the time to sit down and get to know anyone or know anyone from the country or read enough so yeah, yeah. I feel like that's what the the tourists do. They just go to Angkor Wat and like take pictures and go like this, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a double-edged sword, you know. And yeah. there's many feelings about that, but what can you say? So, so to close this, I guess, what are Cambodian books or artists or food that you recommend? Yes. Um, Cambodian food is hard. Um, we have lumpenjok, which is a noodle, and then we have prahok, which is really good. There's lok lak. Food for me is hard. I'm not, um, I, I don't know how to cook, so it's hard for me to talk about food. I just eat it really good. But which one is your favorite? Um, I would have to say the fish, the dried fish. It's really good. And, and every, every time somebody from our community here in Tacoma go to Cambodia, my mom always requests to bring back a whole bunch of dried fish. Mm. It's really good stuff. It's preserved and um, just take it out the box and eat it with rice. It's just so simple. Is it, is it salty? Yes. Oh my God, we have that too. It's so good. Yeah, it's so good. And then throw some watermelon in there. Does it does it smell kind of pungent? Yes, it's very pungent. Yeah. Is it like terasi? Alexandra? I think it's it's like ikanasin. Oh, it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Because yeah. you eat it with rice. <laughs> you eat it with rice and, and it's really um, it's small little fishes and then it's wrapped up in little like kilos of cocaine. That's what I look like when we have to the airport. But um, yeah, artist uh, book Monica Sok is good. Um, there's a, uh, a lot of films. Uh, just go to CambodianTownFilmFestival.com. Um, Forty mm-hmm. Cambodian American films, uh, Cambodian and Cambodian American films were um, offered for free. But as far as artists go, um, I know Jay Chan's really popular. Um, he does a lot of uh, covers of old Cambodian songs. I mean, I could send you a list of things, but off the top, there's just so many, so many good stuff. And when I met yeah. you, Alexandra, I didn't know you was Indonesian, you know. I assume you were... Really? Uh, well, I, I assume you were East Asian, you know, light skin. So that's my bad. See, I have my own biases and, and, and <laughs> assumptions too, you know. I have to own up to it. Wait, yeah. But how do you guys know each other? Uh, we worked on this feature film um, that was uh, produced by a production company in L.A. And they shot in Seattle and Tacoma. Mm. And also and some part yeah. Yeah, I met her because she was one of the, the, you know, the actresses in the film. I, I did the sound. I was just holding the boom mic and pressing record. So long ago oh, everything yeah. in Seattle. What's that? Well, how long ago was that? Like 2016? Oh my God. I feel like, I think that it was before that. I feel like it was 2015 or maybe 2016. Maybe. Yeah. No, it was it, before Trump became president for sure. Yeah, for sure. 14 or 15. It has to be 14 or 15. 14 or 15, I feel. Yeah. I remember it was like pretty cold when we shot there. Yeah, it was around January. I mean, it's Seattle. It's always cold, no? <laughs> That's my only Seattle. experience of like visiting <laughs> Seattle for just one time. You're mostly right. We're, we're, we're cool 60s, 70s, and we, we get to the 80s and 90s in our summers. But um, mm. otherwise, it's cool 75, 70 most of the time. But you're right. It's cold a lot. <laughs> Yeah. And like, as a tropical person, I'm just like, yo, I can't stand this. It rains every day. There's, there's like three days of sun out of 365 yeah. days of the year. 
No, you're right. It just it is a rainstorm two two days in a row, but this coming this coming week is going to be like 80 degrees. It's so weird. Wow. That's good. And 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 y'all are staying safe from, you know, like the the hay is is like the air is good. Oh um, yeah. Um, everything in California. It was, it was bad. It was bad when it started raining, the rainstorms flushed all the smoke out. Mm. Yeah, we weren't bad as Oregon and um Oregon and California is really bad, but ours is pretty bad too. All right. Well, thank you for being so game to Yeah, it's been fun. Things. No, thank you. Thank you. I look forward to um, speaking to both of you more. I just want to learn more about Indonesia because I think, uh, no, I think we went to Singapore. We went to Singapore to the United States, but my mom used to talk about Indonesia a lot. Um, she calls it Indonesia, and um, I just didn't, don't know anything about it besides that, you know? Well, if you just like Silong, curious to learn more about Indonesia, where both of us are from, stay tuned to our next episode and continue to listen to our podcast, where we will explore many other Southeast Asian perspectives, both in the homeland and in the diaspora. Silong is currently working on Buried, a book about how a Cambodian family buried their treasured photographs to hide their past. If you want to find out more about his work, the anti-Khmer Deportation Advocacy Group, or any of the artists that Silong mentioned, follow him on Instagram, at TheFakeSilong. And if you like, follow us too at sugar.natmeg on Instagram. Thanks for listening. And until our next feast, this is Alexandra. And this is Ruth.